Well, good morning. Welcome to Bethany. We're glad that the Lord has led you to be with us on this holiday weekend for worship. We are working our way through a study of the Old Testament book of Esther. I've titled this series, The God of Great Reversals. And in this uh, study, over the first two messages, I have been adding some hints for you, kind of some guides on how we can read the book of Esther theologically. Uh, why do I need to add that? Well, this is a very unique book in Scripture because, as I have explained, it is a book where God is not mentioned. We do not see God's active hand, you know, showing up and speaking through a prophet or any of those typical ways that we are used to seeing God at work, particularly in the Older Testament. And it was for this reason that the, uh, that the early church council struggled. Should Esther be included in the books of the Bible, or should it just be considered a, a piece of ancient literature not inspired by God? And of course, they ultimately settled on the fact that it was inspired by God. It is for God's people to study, but it is different from almost every other book of the Bible that we read. And so um, each week, I want to give you a clue, and this will take maybe a couple more weeks, to give you some clues on reading this book from a theological perspective. And, and the first thing that I encouraged a couple weeks ago is that we ought to recognize the function of what I'm calling divine coincidence. And, and I use that term because I think when, when we see coincidence happen, when something occurs that is very fortuitous, that seems to be ordered in just such a perfect way that a particular outcome is seen, we think, well, that's, that's great. That's happenstance. That's life in this world. And if we see two coincidences happen back to back, we think, well, wow, look at that. And yet as we read the book of Esther, what we will find is that the parade of divine coincidences occurs with such rapid fire regularity that it causes the thinking reader to say, wait a minute, this can't just all be happenstance. Uh, we, we saw this as we worked our way through chapter one, when there is a search that is begun for a new queen. That's actually the content of our study today. And it just so happens, a nice coincidence, that Esther, this young Jewish girl, is included as one of the candidates. And once there, it just so happens that she wins the favor of the steward in charge of all the young girls who are candidating for the office of queen. And then it just so happens that when she has her audition with the king, she catches his eye, and on and on and on it will go. You cannot read this book without catching the intent of the rapid-fire coincidences, which are truly not coincidence. But there's a much better word, and it's the word providence, that God's hand seems to be writing it. I think that's a helpful tool in reading this book theologically. Uh, last message, I talked to you about a literary term called peripatia, 
And a literary uh, peripatia occurs when you are to understand that there is a sudden or unexplained reversal of situation or circumstance. And peripatias occur all throughout this book to such a degree that I've chosen that God of Great Reversals as the subtitle of the entire series that we're working through. And you will do well as we read the book of Esther to catch and take note of the sudden reversals. We saw this in chapter one where it was painted in the form of stark irony as, uh, as the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, uh, sends this decree out and calls his wife to come parade herself before his drunken house guests, and she said no. And he is dismayed and probably a little tipsy himself, so he's not responding in his best uh, um, responses. And so his punishment to her, you will never come before me again. To which we thought, well, that's ironic. That's exactly what she wanted. (laughs) Like, I'm not coming there. That's an inappropriate request. And the irony continues on and on. There was concern among his counselors, the king's counselors, that word might get out to the women of the Persian Empire that the queen refused the king's request. And so what did they do? They sent an edict out all throughout the empire announcing the queen's refusal to heed the king's request. That's ironic. And we will see this happen over and over again. And the overuse of irony is going to bring about unexpected, unforeseen reversals. There is a, and, and these two I've covered in past messages. Today I'm going to add another to it. And it is the meaning of the name of the heroine of the story, Esther. The book is named after her. But she's the one character in the story who is given two names. Her given name, her birth name, is Hadassah. It's a Jewish name. And yet we find that this girl, Hadassah, also has a Persian name. And it will be helpful to you theologically to note why one character addressed by two names, and in particular, and this is a very biblical motif, the meaning of her names is going to bear great insight and weight into understanding the nature of our story. Keys to reading Esther theologically. I will add to this list uh, in future messages as we go along, but I think these clues will be helpful to you to see the fingerprints of God in a book where God seems to be quite hidden. When we, last, when we last left King Ahasuerus, he had his ego bruised by his queen who refused to parade herself uh, before her husband's drunken house guests. We know that he bid her to come wearing her crown. Scholars argue about what that may have meant. Some have taken that to mean that she would come without a veil over her face or without concealing a wardrobe so that her figure could be seen and her face could be seen. It was said that she was lovely to look at and the king was all about parading his wealth and beauty in front of his house guests. Other scholars said no, 
it seems that what the king's request was was this, Vashti, I want you to come wearing your crown and nothing else and walk before my guests. And whichever of those is the case, we certainly know that her answer was no. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. What happened in light of her response? Well, she was immediately relieved of her office as queen. Uh, we won't hear of Vashti again other than the fact that she was ordered then not to ever appear before her husband again. But even worse than that full-hearted response was the fact that the king listened to the advice of his royal counselors and commissioned a kingdom-wide edict. The fear was if word gets out that the queen refused the king, Persian women across the vast empire, 127 provinces, Persian women everywhere will rise up and revolt against their husband. When I talked about this a couple weeks ago, I said something about feminism and ladies burning their bras. And somebody said, Tim, no one under 40 knows what you were talking about. <laughs> and that's probably true. So I apologize. You can look it up. <coughs> <clears throat> uh, the, the funny thing was, was a feminist uprising truly a threat in ancient Persia? Answer, not a chance. This is a time on planet Earth and a culture that was so over-the-top masculine and paternal in its instincts that the notion of some kind of revol revolt of rebellion on the part of Persian wives across the kingdom is laughable. Nonetheless, the advisors to the king said, let's send out an edict all across the empire that says that every Persian man will be recognized as master of his own household. Can I get an amen? Here's the point. If your leadership is established by policy, you don't have any, right? And yet that is the laughable response of all of that. That's where our story left off at the end of chapter one. As we move to chapter two, I'll give you an outline of what I will be working through. The theme of this uh, majority portion of chapter two is on selecting a new queen. And it starts with this uh, campaign of gathering young virgins from across the empire. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, uh, please open it to Esther chapter two, and I'm gonna read verses one through four. You follow along in your copy of God's word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but you follow along in whatever version you have with you today. And we will uh, see how the story begins. Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, what things? Well, this is the story of chapter 1, of the edict that has gone out across the empire, of Vashti being deposed as queen. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. I have to tell you that when I read verse 1, I, I, I hear, do you hear it with me? The regret of the king. 
When his anger had abated and he remembered Vashti, the beautiful queen, and what she had done, she said no, and what had been decreed against her, you will never come into my presence again and you will be deposed as queen. And I think there's some content between verse 1 and 2 because look at verse 2. When we see the king in his regret, his mournful remembrance of his wife, it says in verse 2, then the king's young men who attended him said. The king's attendants noticed something in him as he thought, I think fondly of his queen, of his wife. Maybe she was his soul mate. Maybe in every way she was a wonderful wife, a good queen. Maybe her capacity to stand up in ancient Persia when an inappropriate request had come before her and she had enough backbone to say, I am not going to do that. Maybe all of these things contribute to the fact of some of Vashti's good qualities of life. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. In other words, we can tell he is mourning. We can tell he has regret over this decision. We can tell that the king is lonely without her. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So the king is forlorn. He's regretting. He's, he's, he's alone and he's sad. And his attendants look at him and say, we can tell what's happening. He regrets his decision. He's, he's lonely. We ought to come alongside him and recommend a course of action to alleviate that. Let's change his situation. King, here's an idea. Let's search throughout the kingdom and let's find all the young, beautiful virgins and let's gather them together and you can pick from among the best of the best a new queen. And it says at the end of verse four, this pleased the king and he did so. Once again, showing how this king seems to love superficial and less than perfectly helpful strategies to alleviate his situation. What is their proposal? We will search all 127 provinces of Persia for women who, who possess three particular qualities. Number one, she must be beautiful. Number two, she must be young. And number three, she must be a virgin. It seems that there is no consideration given to other matters. For example, a girl's political or family status, not in consideration here. A young girl's character, not in consideration here. 
a young girl's intelligence, not in consideration here. A young girl's inner beauty, not in consideration here. As far as these advisors see things, only three criteria really matter. Youth, virginity, and physical beauty. And so any girl in the realm who possesses those three criteria will be summoned to Susa, to the royal harem, so that from there the king can choose the next queen. Again, evidence that the king seems to be easily won over by superficial and short-sighted plans. But beginning in verse 5, we are introduced to the two key characters of this entire book. It'll start with a man named Mordecai in verses 5 and 6. Look with me. Verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. It's interesting in verse 5 that the very first thing noted about Mordecai was his nationality, a Jew. Why would the author consider that something so meritorious that it bore the importance of being the first descriptor of this new character? A Jew who lived in Susa named Mordecai. Then it describes his lineage, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Now, we don't know, uh, and most Christians do not remember all the names of important lineage in the nation of Israel. And certainly, the son of Jair may not mean a whole lot to most of us. But it is interesting that they note the son of a man named Shimei. Do you remember a Shimei from your Old Testament? It's kind of a common name. There's a lot of individuals with that name, and we're not necessarily told which. But there was a key figure named Shimei, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, who was the guy who, when David fled Jerusalem because of his son, this guy Shimei followed David along from the hilltops and cast curses down on him and was throwing rocks at David and all his mighty soldiers. You remember this guy? He is a character. And it's told that the, the soldiers of David said to David, this guy is throwing dust down on our heads. He's being a pest. He's tossing pebbles. My king, let me go and dispatch him. And David said, no, leave him alone. If God has decreed that I should receive this kind of rebuke, who are we to take matters into our own hands? And they let Shimei live. And Shimei, like every good 11-year-old boy, knew it was his duty to be a pest, Right? And he just caused all this kind of embarrassing havoc over David. Later, David is returned to the king's seat in Jerusalem, and Shimei comes with a great apology. And David again said, I will not lay a hand on you. We don't really hear much of him again until late in life, just before David's death, when David said to his son, hey, remember that guy, Shimei? I know you will give him what he deserves after I'm gone. So David didn't necessarily let it go. And I don't know that this is the Shimei, 
but I'm inclined to think so because of the way that it is included here. And then the next one, a son of Kish. Now there's another kind of Old Testament familiar name, the, the father of Saul. A and another character in this whole breadth of the kingdom of Israel and what it meant. The author, as he introduces Mordecai, wants us to understand something of his lineage. Verse 6, uh, son of Kish, a Benjamite, verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the carried away from Jerusalem with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, this is interesting because if you go back and reread the story when Jeconiah was led away by Nebuchadnezzar, this was the very first export of the exile, of the captivity of Israel. And the Jews that were taken in this very first deportation were all the Jews who had some civic place of responsibility. All the leaders, all the warriors, all the civic influencers, all the people of wealth and influence, all taken away in that initial deportation. All who were left in the Holy Land after Nebuchadnezzar's initial deportation were the common men and women who were then left to govern themselves and, and take upon themselves responsibilities that they had no familiarity with because all the leaders had been taken. It would seem that Mordecai comes from a family of some responsibility and accomplishment. And the author of Esther has called attention to that and wants us to see it. But then in verse 7, we are now introduced to the heroine of our story. It says in verse 7, he, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Here we have the context of Esther's family, as it were, an orphan girl whose parents are now deceased and whose older cousin, more like a father figure, has taken up responsibility for her. We're not given the specific details, but imagination would lead me to think that Esther was probably an older girl when her parents passed, that Mordecai, this older cousin, took her in, provided for her protection, shelter, food, guidance, and looked after her as a stepfather-type figure in her life. These uh, details that we are given of her is that she bears two names given in rapid uh, succession. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and this brings me back to the point of reading Esther theologically. Because as we uh, seek to do that, we are going to see that the meaning of her names is a clue to the activity of God in this book. In Hebrew, the name Hadassah <coughs> excuse me, means myrtle. 
a fragrant shrub or tree. Myrtle, to this day, is still used as a fragrance. Hadassah means myrtle. Her Persian name, however, is Esther. And Esther is the Persian word for star, that which shines brightly. It is also seen in the name of the Persian goddess of love and war known as Ishtar, very close to Esther. And these two matters of love and war are going to be matters in Persia in which Esther plays a very prominent role in our story. However, more interesting than any of those facts is this one, that when Esther's Persian name is read in Hebrew, it is uh, found by a Hebrew word that means, I am hiding or I am hidden. That's how you say Esther in the Hebrew language. I am hiding or I am hidden. And as the story unfolds, concealment seems to be a major theme that we encounter over and over again in the book of Esther. For example, Vashti is deposed as queen because she insists on concealing her body. And when a search for a new queen is begun here in chapter 2, Esther will conceal her Jewish identity. And when her people, the Jewish people, later in the book are threatened, she invites the king to a banquet, but she will conceal her true intentions. And as you read this, we ought to take note that Esther, as her name suggests, is one who hides. It's interesting to also understand the Jewish rabbinic tradition as the rabbis, having studied this book and written about it through the eras, they, they said that this concept of Esther, that which is hidden or hiding, is one that describes this book as a whole, a book of divine hiding. It was the Hebrew rabbi Jesenius who made a connection between the book of Esther and Deuteronomy chapter 31, where God will hide his face as a sign of his displeasure and judgment. And God's hiding his face allows the Jews to experience exile. But Deuteronomy 31 is more than that because it's a, pro it's a passage that promises that though God may hide his face for a season, he will not allow his people to be completely destroyed. And the parallels with the story of Esther and this story in Deuteronomy chapter 31 are clear. Yes, God may hide his face at times, but that does not mean he has forsaken his people. And the story of exile and return is woven in and around the Esther story. And via her very name is inscribed powerfully and symbolically on the central figure of our story. This is the third clue to reading Esther theologically. Take note of the meaning of her names. Because God 
is in the book of Esther, though hidden. This will lead to the second section of our text, which is describing for us the preparations that Esther goes through. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. It says, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Verse 9, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. Esther endeared herself to Haggai. And it says, And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. It's a fascinating story, quickly moving, showing the agility of advance that Esther seems to go through. It's interesting because when you read this story, it says to us that Esther was taken to the king's harem. And this is where I've struggled this week because as I've read the commentators and, and men and women of days gone by who have commented on this book, I, I see lots of gymnastics going on through the years in how to take the story of Esther. And some of those authors made much of the fact that it says that Esther was taken, and their interpretation of it was this. Esther had no decision-making capacity in this story. She was kidnapped, as it were. She was forced into this scenario. She was essentially given into sexual slavery, or she was raped in this whole process that we will read about and all of it built upon this term, Esther was taken to the king. There's been a lot of effort to moralize this story and, and paint a story where Esther is completely innocent. And I struggle with that because though it does say that Esther was taken in verse 8, that very same word is found in the previous verse, in verse 7, where Mordecai takes her as his own daughter. And, and I would suggest to you that there's nothing unscrupulous in verse 7 as associated with this term. And it's my understanding that if verse 7 can be taken as innocent or even moral, then perhaps it's unfair to put the burden of forced indentured servitude or sexual slavery on the same word in the following verse, in verse 8. In fact, I would say this. I, it seems to me there was something appealing about the opportunity of young girls throughout the kingdom to be invited to interview for the position of queen of Persia. 
It's not exactly a Cinderella story, but it kind of carries some of those images of young girls all across the kingdom who are told at a time when life was very difficult, would you like to come and candidate for the position of queen and become the king's next wife and to live in the palace in Susa to become part of the king's harem there, which means that you will have the best of everything all the days of your life, clothing, cosmetics, care, attendance, and a life of ease at a time in a world where life was mostly difficult. And I would say that it seems to me that certainly there were young girls who leapt at the chance to enter this contest and to candidate to become the next queen. And, and when you understand that Esther, Hadassah, herself is a Jewish girl living in exile in Persia of, a, of a, a nation that was captured, a beleaguered people, a people who desperately needed to find any kind of break in life. And that would cause me to say that certainly for at least some of the girls who went to Susa, this opportunity represented a chance of a lifetime. How Esther felt about being selected for the king's harem is left unstated in our story. But what we do see is that she seems to have leaned into the task enough that she quickly wins over the heart of the <coughs> official in charge of the girls candidating for the office. And as a result, she was given the best in cosmetics and food and maidens and the best room to live in in the quarters where the girls dwelt. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. It says, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. She is hiding the fact that she is Jewish. She had not made known her people or her kindred for Mordecai, had commanded her not to make it known. Again, we can wonder, Mordecai, why did you think it was important for Esther to keep to herself the fact that she was Jewish? We're not told. We're simply told that that was his counsel and that was the counsel that she adopted and acted on. Not to make it known, verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And I can just picture this older cousin, father figure every afternoon at a particular time happening to walk by at the Citadel in Susa, the entryway where the girls were kept and happened to pause long enough to inquire about the well-being of his Esther. He was looking out for her, so he gives her counsel to conceal her national identity, and he checks on her daily. And yet, part of us struggles. Why would he tell her to keep her national identity a secret? Why would she keep that hidden, put away in the closet, as it were? And I think that certainly part of the answer is this. Esther seems to be a young girl who's caught between two worlds. 
Part of her identity is rooted in her Jewish heritage, and part of her identity is tied to the culture of Persia in her day. And as the events in this story unfold, we will see the tension between these two identities come to the forefront again and again, as in a number of occasions she is forced to decide which identity to embrace. Am I a Jewish girl, part of God's covenant people, or am I a refugee in Persia, striving in this contest to win the king's affections? And what we see is that on, one, on the one hand, her Jewish roots would certainly mean avoiding at all costs becoming a pagan king's concubine. There's hardly anything more of an affront to Jewish sensibilities than to have a Jewish girl living as a concubine, which was a sexual servant to a king, um, living among other women in that same role. And yet, on the other hand, living in a cultural climate of the Persians would mean that the whole concept of entering this contest and living as a concubine would be seen as something very desirable, very advantageous. And so I say again, I think she's caught in the tension of these two worlds. And I would pause here to say this. Throughout history, people of faith have always found themselves living in that same tension between faithfulness to their spiritual identities and between the pressure of the cultural expectations and opportunities that surround us. Teenagers, this is where you live, facing daily the pressure. Will I live as a child of God, a Christian, or will I live to fit in in my school, in my workplace, with my friends, with the values that they hold? Young adults, you face the same tension. Will you adopt biblical sexual standards or will you adapt to the norms of our culture? You both will ask, will I be ethical in my schoolwork or will I do what everyone else around me seems to be doing? Will I live for God no matter what or will I hide my faith? And adults, who work in the marketplace find themselves with the same tensions, asking themselves, am I a Christian serving an employer or am I a marketplace worker who happens to have religious commitments? Will I adopt the values of corporate America or will I adopt the values of Jesus and see inherent worth in everyone that I come into contact with, whether it be my boss or my coworkers or my customers? And I want to tell you something. Every single Christian, just like Esther, find themselves in situations where you have to choose between doing what is right and doing what is culturally acceptable, between acting with integrity and between seizing opportunities that may lead to our advantage. And now I want to say this. In Esther's case, it seems to me that she is choosing to seize an opportunity 
and get close to those who were in charge at the moment. And as a Christian reader of Scripture, that leaves us feeling a little bit uneasy inside. I want to continue. Look at verses 12 and following. It says, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was a regular period of beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. This is fascinating to me. Picture this, ladies, six straight months of spa treatments. Can I get an amen to that? Six straight months, uh, half of it spent, how does it say it? Half of it focused on uh, oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. It seems that these girls were subjected to a room that was saturated with fragrance and would spend extended time there, so much so that those fragrances would penetrate their skin and they would carry that fragrance with them. And then six months with oil and spices seemed to be skin treatments to the max so that their skin was perfect and glowing and supple. And after six months of daily immersion in beautification, it says, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And best as we could understand, picture this, young girls who know that their night with the king is coming and they are told, you are here in the citadel, the palace of Susa, the greatest empire on earth at the time, an empire which the king has already flaunted his gold and silver couches, his beautiful tapestries on the wall, and the actual pavement which is made of precious stones and gems and these girls are told, go and take whatever you want with you for your one-night audition with the king. And I could see some girls saying, load me up, right? I'll take the crowns and the necklaces, and I will take the bracelets and the toe rings, and I will take the most beautiful garments. And the notion is that whatever they chose to take with them that night for their audition, whether the king chose them or not, they got to keep what they took. And so at a time when these young girls would lavish on themselves, it's like, you know, I, I may not win the contest, but I'm going to get what I can get while I can, and would load up and take with them all that they could. We read here <coughs> that she would go and it says she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem. There's a change of abode, a change of groupings. The initial group was for the beautiful young virgins under the custody of a superintendent named Haggai. Now, after her night with the king, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. Now, without saying so, the author is making very clear to us that this night-long 
audition was not a talking session, right? These girls didn't have a night with the king to learn his background and values and share their stories. And it is evident by the change of locations. Make no mistake, these tryouts were absolutely sexual encounters between the king and these young, beautiful, virgin girls. And again, as a Christian reader of the scripture, that sits uneasy with our sensibilities. And then we are told in verse 14, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Verse 15, and I'll, I'll read down through 18. This is as far as I'll go this morning. We read this. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his, as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had been in charge of the women, advised. This trusted advisor whom Esther had won him over, said to her, listen, girl, don't load up on jewels and clothing like so many of these. Let me tell you what the king will enjoy. And she took only what she was advised. It says, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken away to King Ahasuerus in his palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the province and gave gifts with royal generosity. We're given a time marker in here, which is very interesting. It's the seventh year of Ahasuerus's reign. We saw another time marker in chapter one. It was the third year of his reign. Four years have transpired between chapter one and chapter two. Historically, we know what this king, also known as Xerxes, did. He tried to go and attack Greece and avenge his father. I've shared this before. We know historically that he ran into a nasty tribe of Spartans, uh, the 300, with King Leonidas, who rebuffed them and held them off, and they were eventually defeated. And after four years, King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, comes home humiliated and at loss, and it's there that then he begins to think fondly of Vashti, and he's in greater depression than anyone could understand. And so his counselors and attendants said, let's find a new queen. They put forth this plan. We are introduced to Esther Hadassah, the one who is hidden, who comes forth and in quick work becomes the chosen queen. As we cover this story, I will say it again. There's something awkward morally in this story for us. Women are objectified. Men are 
portrayed as predatory, and it leaves us feeling uneasy, uh, tainted. We don't like the unsavory details of this story. And no, it doesn't seem to me that Mordecai is pushing his cousin into this situation. No, it doesn't seem to me that Esther is being dragged or forced, though some may have wanted to interpret the story in this way. And it's here that I think uh, biblical scholar David Strain gives a helpful explanation in his uh, brief commentary on the book. Strain says this, Esther, too, does not flinch from narrating for us this simple, ugly fact of life in ancient Persia where people are treated as commodities. It is no fairy tale story of a poor Jewish girl falling in love with Prince Charming. Esther, too, is a story the likes of which, when we hear it on the news, we can scarcely bear to contemplate. He continues, and yet, it is here amidst the moral ambiguities and the shocking abuses that dog Esther steps that we are being invited to trace the footprints of the sovereign God who is working in and through and despite the sin and suffering that we find here for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. No matter how scholars of the past have tried to moralize this story to explain away the sordid details, the truth is that it's very difficult to polish the moral letdowns that this story paints for us. Esther was a Jewish girl, but probably not one who followed the dietary laws, probably not one who observed the Sabbath, and who, it seems, willingly fornicated with the Persian king. And the simple fact is that when she faced a difficult situation in life, she did not resist, but instead, she compromised. And this is where I would say to us, church, and I want you to hear this, maybe the problem isn't so much with the details of the story of Esther, Maybe the problem is with our expectations of what the Bible should look like. I want to remind you that Scripture is not a chronicle of great moral examples and ethical heroes and spiritual giants for us to honor and follow. <coughs> no, the Bible is the unfolding story of the brokenness of men and women uh, one sinner at a time, and it's about God's grace in the midst of all of it. We read about Abraham who lied and doubted, but God worked his providential grace through him nonetheless. We read about Moses' impatience and anger, but God worked through him nonetheless. We read about David committing adultery and murder, but God worked through him nonetheless. Throughout Scripture, we see stories of moral compromise, of God's people failing and sinning, and yet amazingly, God continues to use them for his great purposes, and that same thing is true for Esther. She, I would submit, is culpable for her failures. Uh, there's no need to excuse her compromises. We don't have to downplay them. We don't have to explain them away. 
And yet still the story of the book of Esther is about how her compromises seem to be used by God to deliver his people, Israel. And, and I believe this. Some of you are here in church today because you need to hear this. Because like Esther, you have compromised in the area of sexual morality. You have engaged in premarital sex or you had an affair on your spouse. Some, like Esther, have married or are considering marrying someone who does not share your faith in Jesus Christ. Some, like Esther, have pursued opportunities no matter what the cost. And still others, like Esther, have tried to hide and conceal their Christian identity and denied their faith in order to fit in. And listen to me, church, because the glorious news of the gospel in Esther is this. God is somehow able to gather up our messes and our moral failures and use them for something glorious and redemptive at the end of the day. The cross tells us this. <coughs> that cross shows us that there is nothing that you or I could ever do that is irredeemable. I don't care how big your mess-ups, how awful your sin, how badly you've blown your life up, understand this, God is able to take your failures and incorporate them into his larger plan. And that doesn't mean that you won't have to pay a price or it doesn't mean you won't have any consequences to live with, but God is able to write a beautiful story out of the messes that we make. Somebody say amen. There's an old proverb that says, God writes straight lines with crooked sticks. And that's you and me, crooked sticks. And somehow, though crooked and bent with sin and scarred and marred in every way, somehow in God's hand, our crooked lives write straight lines. And that means that there's hope. So I say to you, if you've been sexually immoral, if you bear loads of guilt and remorse, and if you wonder if God could ever use you, Esther says he can. You might wonder if your future husband or wife will be able to overlook your past and forgive what you've done. Esther says they can. God's grace is bigger than one night. God's grace is bigger than any compromise that we've made and our biggest mistakes can be redeemed for God's purposes. If you've married an unbeliever disregarding God's commands to you, God can use you and work in your home. And if you've had a child out of wedlock, God can bless your family. And he does. We need to be reminded of this truth. And this story just speaks of it. Here's how the prophet Isaiah said it. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That is God's forgiveness. That is how God can use us and change us. You may feel like you've made a mess. God says, I got this. 
You need to believe in me and trust me. I love Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 where he said to a lost crowd, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's what God can do and that's what God does in us. One of my seminary professors was author Gordon MacDonald. I'm going to close here who told a story set in southern England at a pub alongside the sea, a rare place for food and beverage for travelers on a particular night when a storm was coming in. And as the clouds gathered and as the rains began to pour down, more and more people crowded into that pub till every table and every chair was filled. And yet the people kept coming and they were standing around the edges and soon they were filling all the gaps. And one of the waitresses serving uh, the, the beverages was carrying high above her head a large platter filled with coffees and drinks and some food. And as she was moving her way through the crowd, somebody bumped her hard and the whole plate got thrust against a wall that had just recently been repainted. And everybody looked as the work of the remodeling started to change colors and drip down the wall. And the owner of the pub came forward and he was livid. And he started to light into that server for how clumsy she was and how uncautious and how foolish it was of her to do that. And all the guests in the pub <coughs> watched with some horror as her boss read her the riot act. And finally, one of the patrons of the restaurant stood up and said, hey, let me see if I can do something with that. And he went outside and he got his tool kit and he brought it back in and opened it up and saw that there were a bunch of paints and paintbrushes in there. And he walked to the stained mess of a wall and started to draw out some shapes and to fill in with paint. And in 45 minutes time, he turned that mess of a wall into a beautiful masterpiece. And at the very end, he took a piece of charcoal out of his bag and he scrawled his signature at the bottom and put his stuff in his case and left. And one of the patrons went up and bent down really low to read that signature and turned and shouted out the name of the man that they had watched, one of the most famous painters in England at the time. And the moral of that story is that God can take any mess that we make and he can redeem it and turn it into a masterpiece right before our eyes. What is required for God's work to happen? You have to believe in him and you have to repent. You have to turn from your sin and turn to him in trust. And some of you are here today because you needed to hear these truths and some of you are here because you need to put your faith in Christ so that the masterpiece been, can become the canvas of your life. So let's pray. Loving God, as we come this morning, we are thankful, Lord, for your work in us, the fact that we have all blown it, we have all stumbled in many ways, and we are experts at making messes. And as we read Esther's story and the sordid details of her participation in the drama, 
we confess, Lord, that that leaves us feeling uneasy. But my prayer is that, un, that this ease that we feel might be conveyed to a level of appreciation for the grace of God in our lives. Lord, thank you for forgiveness and what it means. Thank you for changing us and using us and the fact that nothing we do makes us irredeemable or unusable by you. And I pray this morning for someone who's here who has sinned and feels shame and feels unworthy and feels like they need to keep that hidden because no one would ever understand and certainly you would never use them. And I pray by your spirit right now that you would bring a conviction to their heart to know that that is a lie. And I pray for them, Lord, that they would open themselves to your grace. As our heads are still bowed and our eyes are closed, I would just say to you, if you're here and you want God's forgiveness, you want him to repaint the canvas of your life, you can do that right where you're seated by reaching out to him in faith. And you can do that in a quiet word of prayer right from the seat you're seated in. You don't have to say this out loud. God will hear your heart. But if that's you, pray with me right now and let God begin his work in you. Say to him from your heart, say, Lord, thank you for helping me today to be in a place where I could hear that you long to forgive me and use me and do a great thing in my life in spite of the fact that I have blown it in so many ways. And so, Lord, I'm asking you this morning, will you forgive me for my sinfulness, for the things that I've done wrong, for the messes I've made? Lord, please forgive me. And I'm asking you this morning to come into my life. I, I believe in you. I believe you're real. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. I believe that. Thank you for raising him from the dead three days later. I believe that. And Lord, I'm asking you, based on the work of Christ, to come into my life and to paint something beautiful instead. I'm asking you to come in and do that, Lord. It's in the name of your son, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. So here we are. Pastor Tim went long this morning. And uh, it's time for us to be done. But I would say this. If, you, if God is at work in your heart and you're one of those who's ready for a new start, I want you to share that. Don't just conceal it. Don't be Esther. Don't hide it. The uh, easiest way would be to take one of the, uh, resp the info cards from the chair in front of you and write your name on there and check the box that says, I'm committing my life to Christ and drop that in one of the offering boxes in the door as you go. And I'd love to connect with you this week and, and help you to understand that decision. We want to celebrate the work of God among us. I think we have a closing song. Is it really short? Well, play it fast, okay? Yeah. <laughs>